One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. On today's show, the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Yes, joining us down the line from his home in Kensington in London was Piers Morgan. I, I hope I reach a place where nobody hates me. That would be nice, where actually I can conduct myself in a way that doesn't lead to people hating me they may disagree with me, but I'd like that for everybody. We know Piers from his robust, forceful, some might even say abrasive interviews at Good Morning Britain and previously at CNN. Since the pandemic, he's become an unlikely hero of the pro-lockdown side of the argument. Well, I challenged him on some of those ideas and we certainly saw a different, softer side to Piers. We recorded this interview with Piers a few weeks ago, but his concerns around the pandemic are as relevant as ever. Hi, Freddie. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So I've looked at your book. Um, this is Wake Up, the story of at least part of the craziness of 2020. It sort of stops a bit of a cliffhanger in mid-July. Um, and it seems to me that there are two big themes running through it. The first is what you call the Wokies, the explosion of kind of ultra political correctness and, and how your thoughts about that have developed. And the other, of course, is the pandemic. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to kind of dive into them. Well, let's start with COVID. So since the beginning, you have been calling for more restrictions. You, you wanted lockdown earlier. When it sort of ended, you were worried that it was ending too soon and they were encouraging people out. Uh, and now you seem to be keen to, to, to make sure we have more restrictions. Give us your kind of position on it. What, what, what do you want to see happen? Well, I certainly don't want to see another national lockdown. Um, and, you know, it's never been that I want to see more restrictions. What I felt back in March, uh, very strongly from basically the start of the week of the Cheltenham Festival around March the 10th, was I was tracking what was happening around the world very closely because of Good Morning Britain. And in particular, what was happening in Italy. And it seemed to me that Italy had the second best health system in the world and was getting completely run over by this virus, which we knew very little about. 
And that because we knew so little about it, because there was so much concern about what might happen to our own health service, which is far from number two in the world, it seemed to me that a lockdown from the moment on, I think, March the 11th, that the WHO said it was officially a global pandemic, that a lockdown would at least buy us the time to try and work out what to do with this virus. Uh, and in that sense, I think the first lockdown was very effective from a public health point of view. I think the death toll genuinely would have been massively higher had we not had it. And I think our failure to lock down for 10 days to two weeks before we did cost a lot of lives. Uh, now, different argument now, I think. We're now in October. We know a lot more about this virus. We know there are drugs that can stop a lot of people from getting seriously ill and dying, which is great. But we don't have a vaccine. And we certainly don't have a testing system anywhere near the standard required to suppress the virus through test, trace and isolate. And that leaves lockdowns of some kind the only way to try and deal, in my estimation, I'm not an expert by any means, to try and deal with this second wave, which is clearly coming right now very hard. And it looks likely, as I speak to you, that the death toll in the UK will pass three figures again today. Uh, and that's very concerning. You know, Liverpool has the second highest coronavirus rate right now in Europe. So this is serious. It remains a deadly virus. It's the like of which we haven't seen on this scale uh, for 100 years. And, you know, I, as with all the things which have blown up big in the last uh, few years, from Brexit to Trump to whatever it may be, I'm sort of, you know, I, I'm not on an, on an extreme either end. I'm not a want endless national lockdowns. I don't want that. I can see the massive economic problems it causes, obviously. And I also think it's appalling that in our supposed saving of the NHS, actually what we did was send 25,000 elderly people back into care homes without testing them for COVID, creating a tier of the epidemic. And I also think this issue of people with other diseases, cancer, heart disease, and so on, not getting their treatment is a scandal. And that's not what I call saving the NHS. That's protecting the NHS from being run over by one virus and creating secondary epidemics elsewhere. So the government's had enough time now with this second wave to get a lot of these things right. And what worries me is we're back into mixed messaging and a lack of assurity from the top. Mm. And it worries me that we're going to end up with Boris Johnson trying to please everybody and pleasing nobody. So you mentioned that the government emptying out the hospitals and sending people into care homes. And I think everyone would agree that was a disaster. But in a way, that's just the perfect example of how kind of action, whilst with kind of virtuous intent, uh, can have really dangerous side effects. And I feel like during those fraught weeks in March, you know, people like you, in fact, maybe you more than anyone, were really kind of cheerleading the case for action. And actually, a lot of those things that people thought earlier in March Hospitals were going to get overflowed, which didn't happen. You know, we built new hospitals that ended up empty. We ended up, as you say, putting people into care homes with diseases. We were obsessed with ventilators, and it now turns out that they're not the, the be-all and end-all. So isn't there a wisdom when we don't know that much and when there's a bit of a crisis of saying, hold on, slow down. Let's not have everyone calling for action, 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 because that's what politicians get really kind of excited by. Let's say a bit of bit of calm before we take action. Why didn't you have that instinct? Uh, I don't think it was a time to be calm at all. Uh, I and mean, I couldn't disagree with you more with great respect, because I feel that the one thing we, we uh, should have done was take more serious draconian action earlier, personally. Now, look, 
there are scientists that agree and disagree. I, I'm totally aware of that. I'm not a fanatic on either side of this debate. But I felt very strongly in the moment that with a death rate of getting up to 1,000 people a day, we were at the center of a war with this virus, and we had to take draconian action to shut things down to buy ourselves time. Now, it was obvious that was going to cause huge economic damage, um, and that's clearly what happened. It's obvious if we do more lockdowns now, there'll be huge economic damage. Uh, but we're not the only country that's doing lockdowns. I mean, you go around the world and almost every country is doing them in some form or another. So you said almost there, I heard. And one of the countries that didn't is obviously Sweden. It gets talked about a lot. How can you explain that? Sweden didn't do a lockdown. They've had fewer deaths than we have. Uh, and right now their deaths are averaging one or zero per day, whilst ours are now ramping up again. They seem to be heading into the winter in, in a strong position. Um, whilst they had a much more consistent and much more uh, ca cautious response. How do you explain that? Well, it, it, Sweden's being seen, obviously, as the great, you know, this is how it should have been done. Sweden, as we know, has by far the worst death rate of any Scandinavian country, far by, a far higher death toll than... Well, better any... than ours. Yeah, but, yeah, but they're, listen, they're, what are they, a tenth of the size of this country? Um, so Sweden's an interesting case. But again, you'll have scientists, eminent scientists, looking at what happened in Sweden. Some swear blind that this was great and shows what we should have done. Others say, actually, it's not the great utopia at all. Uh, their death toll, and certainly what they did with care homes, is very similar to what we did. Um, so I think that there are issues with Sweden. I mean, I noticed their infection rates are going up this week. Let's see where, let's see where we are with Sweden in two, three months. Um, a lot of people in Sweden are concerned about what may happen there. I don't know what's going to happen there. We're learning so much as months go past, and we don't really know yet. You know, the situation in a year could look very different. Comparing Sweden and England or other countries might look very different. Um, you know, the fact is that the kind of fear, the kind of projections that Neil Ferguson talked about didn't materialise. Um, and we have in Sweden a very clear example of a country that took less draconian action and has been more successful than us. So isn't there a fear that by encouraging all of this stuff, you're actually possibly leading to these terrible side effects on the economy, on public health, which might not actually be necessary? You might look back in two years and think, called that one wrong. Let me compare Sweden to New Zealand. New Zealand has got a far better record than Sweden. Uh, they locked everything down. They stopped anyone flying in. They locked everything down. They probably had the most draconian lockdown of any country in the world. You could argue, well, hang on. If you're comparing like with like, Sweden population-wise is a lot closer to New Zealand than the UK. So let's compare those two countries with much smaller populations. And by that yardstick, Sweden's been an abject failure and should have done what New Zealand did. So comparisons between different countries, when they're much smaller, like the UK and Sweden, uh, compare with, you know, with 10 times bigger, I think you're a little bit fatuous. And I understand why those supporters of anti-lockdown positions look at Sweden and say, that's what we should have done, left everything open. I think Sweden's work in progress and interesting. But I think if it was the answer, everybody else would be doing it. You know, countries don't want people to die. You mentioned New Zealand there. And this worries me, actually, because a lot of the people on the kind of more sort of lockdown-y side, which I guess I have to put you on, talk about New Zealand. Um, and that's a country that's pretty much closed its borders. You know, if, if you're yeah. going for this kind of ultra suppression strategy, you've got to say, we will try to cleanse our population of this virus, and then we're shutting down. 
um, until yep. some unknown moment in the future. You know, what kind of future is that? Is that something that you would really like to see for the United Kingdom, which is a kind of huge global hub and a trading nation? Well, look, let me just make it clear. I don't want to see any lockdown. You know, I, I, there's no upside to a lockdown other than trying to temporarily suppress the virus. It doesn't cure anything. It doesn't stop anything other than people being infected on the scale that you're trying to avoid. So, look, you know, you're you very... Are, you are in favour of another lockdown now. I wasn't in favour of it. You look at the comparisons we could draw from someone like New Zealand. I wasn't in favour of letting 20 million people fly into this country over a four or five month period, many from corona ravaged countries like Italy or China or Iran or some city like New York. That made absolutely no sense to me, that we did no testing. We tested, I think, under 300 people that came in in that time. 300 out of 20 million. Nobody can tell me that was a sensible thing to do. So I think there are probably, if you and I talked about this for several hours, which we're not going to. But if we did, I think we probably have more points of agreement than not. You know, I don't see anything as being utopia here. I think it's a question of very difficult decisions, none of which are going to be good for uh, the economy. Let's just be completely straight about that. Um, but right now, what I see is Boris Johnson uh, not learning the lessons of the first time, possibly dithering again, now going completely against is we're following the science uh, thing, which he had for the first wave. Now he's clearly not following the science because the science has told him to lock down uh, and have a sort of two-week circuit breaker. So now we're into politician decisions rather than scientific decisions. I guess it's a question of how long for, you know, and, th and this is where it gets frightening to a lot of people, I think, on, on both sides, which is that you know, there's no end point here. And people talk about a vaccine, but realistically, it's going to be a long time before you can get everyone vaccinated. And we don't know how effective they'll be. So we're kind of consigning our country to a kind of half life, going in and out of various restrictions on traffic lights, whatever, and, until further notice. And a lot of people say that's not a reasonable thing to well, do. Well, again, uh, in the eight months that we've been dealing with it, we have made quite big advances on the drugs. So that we know now that there are various steroids which can have a huge impact. We know there are various cocktails of drugs which can have a huge, huge impact. We know from vaccine experts, Dr. Fauci in America, Bill Gates and others, who've worked on vaccines over many things for many years, they're very confident that we'll have some form of effective vaccine within a, a few months. We'll see if they're right or wrong. You're right. There's ever been, there's ever been a vaccine for HIV, but there has been drugs that stop people dying. And I think there will be a breakthrough, funny enough, probably faster on the drug therapy treatment than there may be on a vaccine. And I think that would be enough to effectively bring the horror of the pandemic to an end. And then we can live with a disease if we know it's not going to kill the vast majority of people who get it, even if they're in the vulnerable categories. You know, I know lots of people who've lost parents in this. And by lots, I mean five or six, including a cousin of mine, some very good friends of mine, and there are others whose parents just came through it. I, I felt a very personal attachment to people who've had horror stories with coronavirus. And so when I see people be glib about it, it makes me angry. I don't think anyone should be glib about this virus. We should all take it very seriously. We should have, as you and I are doing now, and that's another theme of the book, a proper constructive debate about actually what the best thing to do is because there's not, a, not an easy answer. So it seems a fair question to say, you know, what would make you change your mind? How long would it have to go on for without a clear end? 
And how bad would the side effects, economic, health, you know, cultural, see how bad would they have to get for you to say, I now no longer think it's worth trying to suppress this virus? Put my question on your head and put one to you, given I'm normally doing the questions. And <laughs> my turn this, this time. It would be, Freddie, at which point do you lift restrictions and just let the virus do its thing? I'm not going to be glib again and say, you want to let it rip. I, I think it's a, another fatuous term. But at what point do you say, no lockdowns, no restrictions, get on with your lives, and we just take a chance with what may happen? Given, given about March, April, I think if we'd done that, we would have had utter carnage. I think there's a very serious case to be made for um, providing for people who want to shield and who are, are vulnerable and make that decision and making sure they're supported in doing that, but allowing people who are at very small risk from it to go about their lives. And I think Liberal is a word that you use a lot in your book. That is the liberal response where you give people the responsibility to, to make the decisions for themselves. And I, I kind but of reject the idea that it's impossible because... It's not as simple as that because it's not about liberty. It's not about freedom. When I hear that, I just laugh. It's nothing to do with that. The virus has got no idea about your libertarian views or your sense of freedom. We're not fighting an enemy like the Nazis where you can beat them and get on with your life. This is a hidden, invisible virus, which actually, if you actually total, I have this argument with one of my sons, uh, Spencer, who's in his late 20s and very vocal on Twitter, uh, he totally agrees with you um, and everything you're saying. And he believes that. But I said to him, well, you, do, you are aware how many vulnerable people there are. In other words, people whose who's, um, vulnerability to the virus is massively higher than you. And he went, what do you mean? I went, well, okay, let's go through it. You know, everybody who's over 70. Um, a lot of Asian ethnicity people, particularly Bangladeshis, a lot of uh, black people would have to... So, so what, what point, Freddie, here's my point. If you total up the number of people in Britain who are technically more vulnerable than you or my son, because you're fit young guys um, and you're fit young white guys, uh, at what point do you say, well, we can't put 25 million people inside and shield them if it includes the entire black population of the country, because they are more vulnerable. So it sounds good on paper, right till you get down to the weeds of what being vulnerable means. It means you have a higher risk. And that, I'm afraid, involves simply too many people. Yeah. I would if you, I mean, my answer would be very simple. is If you can put 65 million people in restrictions, then putting 25 million of them in restrictions is less bad than that. Quite simply, all I'm saying is for those people who are vulnerable and feel that, they could continue to be protected in the way they are now with a clarify, bit of effort. You're British Prime Minister. You're going to tell every black person in Britain they've got to stay inside, but all the young white people can go out. No, Come on. no you're, going, you're going to say this is the risk. This is the risk to you, given your profile. And you now make your, your rightful decision about how you want to live your life. And I know old people who are technically in vulnerable groups, so they want to be able to carry on living their lives. They don't know how many years they have left, and it seems inhumane to say to them, you're not allowed to do that. We're going to force you to stay inside. But what I say is it's not just about you. <laughs> this is the virus that you can take and give to other people. And it's the selfishness that is underpinning this kind of philosophy of, you know what, to all the old and vulnerable, all of you, you just stay in and we'll shield you. The rest of us crack on with our lives. But it's the rest of you at the moment who are ignoring the rules in large swathes of the country, who are creating the surging rise in case... Well, you're shaking your well, head. I'm not we, ignoring the we, rules, but... We know that you're not. I'm just saying it is young people 
who are tending to ignore the rules and spreading the virus at a very large rate again, leading to the very lockdowns they most want to avoid. And I say, look, you've got to be less selfish about this. It's no good just saying the old and vulnerable stay in. Why? Why should they be targeted? Uh, why should everybody who's got a higher risk be told, you, this is your problem? It's a collective problem. Think, Everyone can infect everybody else, I think. I agree that it's a collective problem, but I really feel that to, to position one part of society against the other in the way that you're doing and saying, you know, you're being selfish if you go about your life, or we then start finger pointing and then that divides society. If we could find a solution for people in both groups to be safe and responsible in a way that they're happy with, society will be much more cohesive and we'll have a happier country. If we had a test, trace, isolate system that worked, I could definitely go along with all of what you're saying. The truth is we don't. Only one in five people who should be self-isolating are isolating. You talk about what selfishness is. I wasn't directing it at you personally, but you know, 80% of all those who should self-isolate are not doing it. That is selfish. Most people in this country have, to the government surprise, actually obeyed the rules. Most people in the polls as we sit here today that have come out in the last few days support the restrictions. I'm not the outlier here. Actually, you are. Um, and I totally get where you're coming from. And you, as I've seen from other interviews, you're not hysterical about this, nor are you blind to people giving you information that might inform and change your mind. And I don't have all the answers at all. But I do think that underpinning it is a selfishness amongst a lot of young people that they don't think it's got anything to do with them other than the fact they can transmit it and pass it around and then cause the issues we now have. And I, I just think we have to look at it as a more cohesive, collegiate society. Are you worried about where this will take us as a society? I mean, it's fast-forwarding trends that were already there, but historically you've been someone who likes a kind of a gruff, common-sense society where people are able to take risks and they're able to go out there and bash about a bit and have a kind of vigorous time. And it seems a little bit like this is pushing us into a world where everyone is very sheltered and protected and isolated and communicating only via Zoom and kind of electronic means. And it's, it's a bit of a scary dystopian future we're heading to. Don't you find? Well, it's a very weird existence, but it will be over. The Spanish flu pandemic lasted about two years. I've got every confidence that this won't last much longer than that. I hope it's going to be the case. And it may well be, as with HIV, it the tipping point becomes when we get the drugs that stop people dying more than even a vaccine. So I, I'm confident it's not going to be going on for years and years and years. Um, but I don't know that for sure, but I'm confident. It just looks that that's what most people who do know these things uh, think is going to happen. It certainly changed the way many of us have behaved. You know, the, the homework phenomenon, I think, is going to be hugely popular. A lot of people who don't want to commute and rust up the world with their, you know, their carbon breaking uh, vehicles and want to stay at home. They've got used to that. They like it. It suits companies who will be struggling economically to get back on, on to their feet again. And it won't make sense to pay for big office blocks. Uh, I think office work is going to be forever changed. Mm. That may not be a bad thing. I mean, there are going to be some good things that come out of the pandemic, I think. And I think I thought for certainly for a long time, the community spirit resurgence was actually very nice. I mean, I got in touch with my community just here in Kensington, supported local businesses more than I had done before. Uh, I like that. I like the fact we all came out on a Thursday and cheered the NHS. We've never done anything like that as a local area here as in, in my time here. So I think there were some definite positives. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that 
the, reality, the cold, hard reality is we're facing years of economic hardship. There's no question. And I'm absolutely aware of how difficult this is. I've got family members who've lost their jobs, not through any fault of their own or any deficiency in their workability, but simply because the viability of the business they're working in has ceased to be uh, what it was because of the pandemic. That's not going to get any easier. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, in terms of public health, uh, I think that there are going to be myriad other issues connected with the pandemic in terms of other diseases, people not being treated, the mental It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Health epidemic, clearly, which is going to be very problematic for a lot of people. And all that has to be dealt with by the government. Even a, even a short-term, two-week circuit breaker in half-term in 10 days' time? That's a, there's a good argument that that is better than what we're doing now. Mm. I mean, there is a good argument to say we're better to have a national two-week lockdown than we are to have all these strange regional ones. But even in the same different parts of the Northwest, there's one rule here, one rule here. People we know are traveling around. Is that really going to be, as, as Professor Whitty said, is that really going to be sustainable? Is that actually going to work? You know, I don't believe in anything that doesn't work. I don't agree with the 10 p.m. curfew. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I, all I see is, is millions of people streaming out at the same time in big groups at 10 o'clock. How can that possibly be safer than staggered exits as we have before? So a lot of the stuff makes no so sense. Against, to, so you're against a, a long-term national lockdown, but you'd be in favour of a short-term one? I think there's a good argument, as the SAGE Advisory Board actually put forward, that a two-week circuit breaker national lockdown is more effective potentially in getting on top of the second wave than what we're currently going through, which is whack-a-mole, as mm -hmm. Boris Johnson put it. Now, I don't know for sure 
But I do know that the government scientific body that they were relying on the first time round, they're now ignoring them. And that, that maybe they're right, but it looks to me like this whack-a-mole thing is fraught with danger mm. and that we may end up having to do the circuit breaker, but for longer, for the whole country. Mm. And I think everyone is sick of this and doesn't want to do that. Let's go on to the next big theme of your book, because it kind of interweaves in a way, doesn't it? It's what you call the Wokies. It's this kind of resurgence of ultra-politically correct, almost kind of illiberal thinking that has happened at the same time and during this pandemic in 2020. Uh, you, you frame the whole thing as you talking to your fellow liberals. So give us a definition. What do you mean by a liberal? Well, I actually go into the history in the book of liberalism. And it's very interesting. You know, you go back to the sort of 19th century and you've got the start of liberalism. And liberalism at its core, really, is pretty obvious. It's about, you know, wanting fairness and equality and being tolerant and respectful of other opinions and believing that in a democracy you would debate things and you would learn stuff and you would change position and you would certainly allow other people to have a contrary view to the one that you had. Um, and, and liberalism shouldn't be that offensive to anybody. You know, it's about freedom. It's about freedom of expression, freedom of speech, you know, all the normal freedoms that actually the pandemic has eroded for many of us. What I worry about with the wokedom is that it may have much more corrosive longer-term effect than a pandemic that may last two years, because this has been furiously boiling away before the pandemic. And after a couple of months of respite, where there was no mood for wokey behavior, it all erupted again in the summer on an even more spectacular scale where this kind of destructive desire to get rid of anything that the woke brigade had decided was not acceptable. Uh, we're just completely out of control. We're now at a stage where hairstyles are offensive, uh, accents are offensive, um, TV shows, movies, statues, uh, almost every form of history that this country was built on is offensive. Uh, same thing in America. Everything's offensive. Every president's offensive. Winston Churchill has to be boarded up in Trafalgar Square, as does Nelson Mandela, as does Gandhi. And at that point, you're thinking the world is going completely nuts. And it's being driven, actually, by quite a small number of people. You know, Twitter only has 20% of the population on it in the UK and America. And of that 20%, 10% of that 20% make 80% of the noise. And they tend to skew to the wokey side. So you've got this small but very determined and aggressive, slightly fascist in their mentality, ironically, given they profess to hate fascism, uh, group of people trying to cancel everything that doesn't rigidly fit their worldview at the moment. And that is the very antithesis, I would argue, of liberalism and of tolerance and of democracy. So really, the underpinning the book is, which I started writing before the pandemic, is that the pandemic for a while put a lid on this and then actually became a catalyst for it to be exacerbated. And that is very, very damaging to society because what it really represents is an ongoing, ever more frenzied assault on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which are the cornerstones of any democracy. So one thing I do feel I've got to try and call you up on here is, is you know, you talk about tolerance, respect for other people's views. In the book, you talk about how one of the kind of etymology words for 
Uh, liberalism is liberalis, meaning courteous, generous, gentlemanly. Um, your show uh, is not always those things. Um, it's many things, but I guess they won't be the, wouldn't be the first adjectives that came to mind. How do you square this passionate liberalism with your not very liberal attitude to your guests? Well, I totally embrace my own culpability in uh, being part of the social media noise in this regard. And I detail uh, in the book moments where I think I've just gone too far and should rein it in. I also detail how successful the likes of Captains Sir Tom Moore and Marcus Rashford have been by being the complete opposite of my style on Good Morning Britain, by being very calm and respectful and polite and very liberalist, um, and being extremely effective in fundraising and in affecting change for, for very poor children. So there's definitely lessons for me to learn from, the, the, from what I've written here, and I totally accept that. I, I do think there's, being liberal doesn't mean you can't be passionate, and it doesn't mean you don't believe in having furious debate and argument, because that's what I love doing. The difference between me and a wokey is I don't think my view is the only one that can be heard, and I don't want anybody cancelled for having a different view to me. I don't think that my view is so intransigent that actually no other view can be tolerated. It's the cancel culture accompanying the wokedom, which I think is the problem, because it doesn't allow debate. Should uh, viewers of uh, GMB expect a kind of more a softer, more courteous peers coming up? <laughs> Not, not with government ministers, because I think they should be held to ferocious account. And it really concerns me for our own democracy that they're currently ducking Good Morning Britain for nearly 170 days, uh, Newsnight and Channel 4 News. I mean, you can, you can work out why they're ducking those three shows, yeah. and it's frankly pathetic. But, Piers, you know, the, the speaking as a kind of new um, attempting to be an interviewer myself, you know, You've got to be courteous to them, because otherwise they won't come on. I mean, and that's what's happened to you with the government ministers. Isn't it true? They've, you've crossed the line and they've just said, well, it's not, it's not a respectful exchange of views anymore. He's just going to sort of shout me down. Therefore, sorry, I'm not coming on. Yeah, but go back and watch the interviews. And if you go back and watch them, what you'll find is my fury was very real. And it was based on their utter incompetence and inability to answer even basic questions about their own policies. And I found that absolutely shocking. So I won't make any apologies for going after the government ministers. And frankly, I wouldn't do if they came back on again now. If they can't handle a hot interview in the morning with me and Susanna Reid, they definitely can't handle running a pandemic, would be my argument. And we've had, we've had many people, uh, David Dimbleby this morning said the same thing. Jonathan Ashworth, we give him a hard time when he comes on. He always comes back. Nicola Sturgeon. We chew her up occasionally. She always comes back. They believe that actually you have a duty to the electorate, the viewers, they're your voters, to come on. And it's not always hot. We did some pretty respectful interviews with Hancock early on, and they got increasingly heated as it went on. They were itchy, but they weren't that, you know, they weren't that ferocious. He's the health minister. He's a busy guy. It's a pandemic. He's coming onto your show. He's giving his time. You know, I, I still think you've got to kind of respect the office at least and sort of treat him a little bit less like a kind of schoolboy squit who you can just bat away. <laughs> well, like I say, he should be able to handle it. And the great beasts of the political jungle in the past would have handled it without any problem. The problem they have with this cabinet is it is, by common consent, very mediocre. A lot of very younger people who've been brought in because they basically supported Brexit who have no real experience 
of much in life at all in many cases, and they're trying to handle a global pandemic, and they're coming up short. Um, I find that a lot more troubling than me raising my voice to challenge them. Um, you're a very courteous interviewer, but I also knew when I agreed to do your, your podcast that you would give me a hard time, particularly about lockdowns and the pandemic. I'm still here. Well, thanks. I'm glad. I've got more questions for you. <laughs> so one of them is, you know, to bring those two things together a little bit, the pandemic has become a woke issue. And that's one of the weird things that, that's happened during this year. And I find really unsettling. It's been, it's been politicized. I think it's even worse in America than it is here. But even here, there's the sense that the kind of moral, righteous, virtuous people have one view and that it's kind of, as you said, selfish or worse, it's some sort of right-wing conspiracy if you are more uncertain about the wisdom of those interventions. Aren't you worried that you're sort of now on the, on the woke side of, of an argument that's being politicized in quite a nasty way? No, I think it's actually uh, more simple than that. It's become tribal, as it has done with Trump and with Brexit. There are two tribes, and if you're in one of the tribes, you have to blindly follow any piece of information which suits that tribal agenda, and you cannot contemplate any suggestion that you might be wrong. I'm not in that position at all. I'm actually, as I think I've shown in this interview, I'm reasonably open-minded. I don't have all the answers. I'm prepared to listen to good news and bad news and treat those two potential imposters just the same. Um, so I don't see myself, and I say with Brexit, I, I voted Remain, and I would do again, but I fought very hard for Brexit to be honoured. And I was a rarity in that sense um, and became a bit of a hero with the Brexiteers, although they all dumped me like a sack of spuds when I took on Boris over the pandemic for reasons that will always baffle me because I don't see the virus as political. I don't see my criticism of Boris as being political. I voted for the guy in December. I said that. Um, but he was hit by something completely different, and he's come up short. So I, I feel like I should criticise him. By the way, as strongly as I criticised Tony Blair over the Iraq war when I was editor of the Daily Mirror, the Labour paper. So I don't see these things as political. Well, I, In answer to the question, you say on. one side sees itself as more self-righteous and wokey as the other on the pandemic. I don't see it that way. I see both sides viewing themselves as the self-righteous ones. They are the ones that know the answer. You know, you see lots of well, high-profile people now, Peter Hitchens to Denise Welsh to all these people, and they're absolutely certain, certain that we shouldn't have any restrictions and no lockdowns, that actually the whole thing is overblown and exaggerated. And on the other side, you have people equally certain we should never come out of lockdown until there's a vaccine and so on. I'm not in either camp. I, I just think this tribalism is incredibly dangerous. And so on this, I think that on as with Brexit and as with Trump, the problem with all these big issues, the three great issues of the last 10 years, that the problem is people going to a tribe and then they, they get fueled by social media and they find it impossible to have any kind of constructive debate because they're, they're just in their echo chamber and that's all they want to hear. The, you mentioned Brexit and I think the reminiscence for people, you said you're a bit baffled why they suddenly dumped you over this. I mean, I think what people probably remember is it's the same crowd with a lot of charts and a lot of certainty um, who were saying that if we Brexit, it's going to be economic disaster and all of that, that are now sort of so certain on the COVID issue and that it probably kind of rings a lot of bells for people and suddenly you find yourself on the opposite side of that. 
Well, I found myself just on the side of big Germans. I, I mean, I don't honestly don't care whether this is a conservative or Labour or Liberal Democrat government. That's got no... Uh, I mean, like I say, I, I voted for this government mm. in December. <laughs> so the idea that I'm coming at this from any anti-conservative, anti-Boris historical position is obviously fanciful nonsense. I've been a good friend of Donald Trump's for 15 years. I've, I've been far more supportive of him than most people on the liberal side. Mm. I've always tried to be fair-minded about him. I think he's had a horrific pandemic, and I've hammered him all over the place uh, for the entire year because of it. You know, I just, I, I just don't see these things as being political. But we're so political now, and we're so tribal, that everybody else does. But all the anti-lockdown people are, are, tend to be um, uh, conservatives. If there was a general election tomorrow, yeah. would you vote for Boris Johnson? It would depend who he's up against. Keir Starmer. I'd probably vote for Starmer against Boris, yeah. So he's lost, he's lost you? Uh, yeah, he has lost me. because, And the same way that, although I never told anyone how to vote with Trump, I could feel last time that the, that the East and West Coast crowd in America had no idea what was happening in middle America, and I repeatedly predicted that Trump would win, which he did. This time, I think it's different. I think America's been exhausted by the Trump circus, and I think the fact that so many have died there from the virus and the fact that the infection rates are surging in many states again now, I think he's going to take a bit of a beating. Mm. I don't underestimate him, and I'd never say for sure, but I get a feeling it's different this time. And you know, does Trump deserve to be re-elected after the year he's had? I would say not. And I say that as someone that was you know, pretty friendly with him for a, a long time. I think it's very sad what's happened in America, but I think it has highlighted the importance of leadership and the type of leadership you require when you get hit with a with a massive public health crisis. Very different to when you're selling the kind of agendas that got Boris and Trump elected. So if you had a vote in America, it would go to Biden? Yes. Yeah. If I was able to vote, I would say Biden, because I've actually known uh, his family a long time. I knew his son, Bo, very well. Uh, I've interviewed his wife. Um, and uh, I think Joe Biden's a decent guy. And I think he's somebody who would bring a bit of seriousness back to uh, America, which I think it needs right now. I think Trump's behavior, certainly in the last two, three weeks, has been so off the dial that even pro-Trump supporters must be quietly recoiling about how mad this is all getting. So warm words there for uh, Joe Biden. So it, the cynics might say that, you know, as Trump's star is clearly falling and you think there's a likelihood of a Joe Biden future, may, does Piers Morgan now need to become buddies with with Biden instead? I uh, very much hope that I would. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I? I'm a journalist. I want, to, I want to get an interview with the President of the United States. But I do actually like Joe Biden. And if you go back uh, several years, you'll find a column uh, last election when I did a column saying, run, Joe, run, and urged him to run against Trump in 2016. I actually think, and I believe now, he would have beaten Trump the first time. And I felt that very strongly. I felt that the Democrats had chosen the wrong candidate Hillary was incredibly polarizing. Joe Biden was far more popular in the swing states than Hillary Clinton. And I think he probably would have won. So I've got a track record of actually publicly urging Joe Biden to run. Now, again, I'm not telling Americans how to vote in their election. And I didn't last time. And I've always said I would personally never vote for Trump, even if I could. He's not my politics. But I've tried to be more fair-minded about him than I would argue almost any uh, non right-wing journalist in the world. What I notice in a little bit of what you're saying now, and also in the book that I've read, 
is there's almost a note of contrition there. There's a, there's, a, there's a number of points where you say, this kind of with me or against me, good or bad atmosphere, you feel that you might have fed in the past by getting overly worked up about issues, by demonizing the other side. I mean, is that how you feel? Do you feel like you've, you've kind of made mistakes in, the, in this respect and Trump was part of that? Yeah, I definitely think I've got, I've got a naturally quite abrasive character. I love a good argument and I have a massive platform. I've got 7.6 million followers on Twitter. That, to put it in perspective, is three times what the Daily Mirror was selling on the day I left to, in 2004. So I've got a huge platform and sometimes you can forget that. But it's actually more a realisation that almost every campaign I've waged in recent years has failed. Um, you know, whether it's against uh, or for more gun control in America, I was very passionate about that. Whether it's to get Arsene Wenger out of the managerial chair at Arsenal, to get Kevin Peterson back in the England cricket team, and to stop people eating vegan sausage rolls, if I could possibly achieve it. Um, none of them have worked. And there has to come a point when you realise that the more you shout at people and the more intransigent your position and the more self-righteous, which I definitely have been on many occasions myself, the less successful you tend to be. Contrast with Marcus Rashford, who is incredibly respectful, not remotely political, uh, and he got what he wanted in 24 hours. There's a lesson for all of us, including me, including, dare I say it, Freddie, perhaps yourself. <laughs> so, I mean, if, you, if this was your show and uh, you were then uh, making these kind of admissions, um, I guess I might ask you, do you, know, do you think it's, it's time to apologise to people that you've had on, who you've shouted, and all those moments where the debate has been made more divisive than it needed to be. I mean, are we at the point where Piers says, I'm sorry for that? Well, I, I had an interesting interview with Simon Hatstone on The Guardian, and he asked me specifically about a, a debate we had about uh, transgenderism with a gay activist journalist called Benjamin Butterworth. And it did get very fiery. And at one point, I mimicked his voice in a slightly camp way. That I shouldn't have done. I think that was unnecessary. It was a bit mean. It was a bit silly. It was a bit, you know, school playgroundy. Absolutely, I'm sorry for that. But as my mother reminded me, well, hang on a second. So just this the one, is... just the one incident. There's no, not a more general. No, no, no. There, there will be others. I, I'm, you know, I'm doing nearly three hours of live telly every morning. There are going to be lots of times I slightly overdo it. But my, as my mother pointed out, well, this is the guy that was trying to get you fired. Benjamin Butterworth actually signed a petition to have me fired from my job. He wanted to cancel me, all because I had the audacity to stand up and say, I don't think the BBC should be teaching children that there are over 100 genders. I thought that was ridiculous. Um, and because I took that position, which I think is actually what most people would think, Benjamin Butterworth wanted me fired because he's a wokey. And actually, I like him. He's a, he's a good journalist, but he's quite woke. And his answer to me having a position like that was to cancel me. So, yeah, I shouldn't have mimicked his voice. Very sorry I did that. I shouldn't have done that. And I'm sorry for all the times I slightly overdo it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a passionate person, and sometimes you get carried away. Uh, but I never hear their side apologise for trying to cancel me. In my view, completely unfairly and irrationally. You don't ever hear the woke side apologise for anything. They're never wrong. They're always right. Well, we'll get them on, and we'll do our best. <laughs> um, Piers, thanks for talking to us. Uh, there's a, it's a kind of a slightly contrite and slightly softer Piers Morgan. I wonder what we'll see in coming months and years. Maybe this is your new flavour. <laughs> well, I think you can have passion and you can care about things, but you can also dial down the 
tribalism and the rhetoric sometimes. And I certainly feel I've learned that this year. And I certainly spent a lot of time to self-reflect. And I think we should all be self-reflecting in this pandemic about way, the way we can do things better going forward. I want to be a force for good, not a force for bad. It was a, a, a piece by Caitlin Moran, who'd been whacking me for years in her column in the Times. And she said that um, I was a Gotham, I was a hero Gotham didn't know it wanted, but possibly needed in the pandemic. I'm happy with that characterization, but I'm also happy to look at myself when I finish the book and say, I'm work in progress and I could adopt a lot of the, the stuff that I'm urging other people to do myself. Got to be careful though, Piers. Too much praise from the liberal blue ticks. I saw you mentioned Caitlin Moran. There'll be <laughs> Alan Rusbridger. We've got some mentions in the book. It's, yeah. it's very seductive, that praise. You don't, you don't want to get used to it. It's very slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm sure I'll be doing quite enough to, to get them all back uh, against me soon. But no, I, I, I hope I reach a place where nobody hates me. That would be nice, where actually I can conduct myself in a way that doesn't lead to people hating me. They may disagree with me, but I'd like that for everybody. I don't think we should all be susceptible to this blind tribal hatred anymore. It is pointless, exhausting, and it never achieves anything. Well, I can't promise that we'll get there, but uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good goal. And thanks for talking to us, Piers Morgan. Cheers, Freddie. All the best. Well, thanks again to Piers Morgan for that. Good sport of him to put himself through the ringer. I confess I enjoyed it even more than I was expecting to. His new book, Wake Up, is out now. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.